This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking about filling in the blanks in movie history and evolutionary history. Joining us today is James Cutting, a psychologist who studies the way movie makers exploit human emotion to tell stories, and Zach Gompert, a biologist who studies fundamental questions about evolutionary genetics. First up, the biologist. When we look at any living thing, we're not just seeing the end result of evolution. We're looking at a snapshot in time. Because evolution didn't stop simply because we showed up. Zach Gompert and his team wanted to know whether we could predict what might come next, and they used 25 years worth of field data on an unlikely animal to do it. Zach Gompert, welcome to Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. So most people who study evolution are looking at the past. You're also interested in the future. How did you start thinking about this other part of the evolutionary story? Ever since my time as a PhD student, I was rather frustrated by the fact that as much as evolution is inherently this process that unfolds in time, we tend to actually not look across time. The reason for that is it's hard. You can't go out uh, today and go collect 20 years of data. But if we really want to understand how evolution works, that temporal aspect is critical. And if we want to be able to think about what evolution is going to do into the future, sure, looking back at deep time in the sense of like fossils is great too, but really we want to understand processes as they're happening now and understand the, the things that are affecting those evolutionary processes so we can then make projections about what might happen into the future. Okay, so you've got this idea. You want to know whether evolution might in some ways be predictable. And you decide to evaluate this using stick insects? Yeah, so, <laughs> so part of the reason why, or maybe one of the main reasons why, is that we actually had the temporal data for the stick insects. So um, two colleagues of mine have been sampling these, these stick insects for 25 years, and there just aren't very many data sets like that in existence. There aren't very many cases where someone's gone out and resampled and resampled and resampled. The other reason why stick insects is that there is at least one trait on these stick insects that we do understand fairly well, and we have reasons to think it's an important trait, and it's something that's easy to score and see, and it's essentially their, their colors. There are these three flavors of these stick insects. There's ones that are brown, there's ones that are all green, and there's ones that are green with a, with a white stripe. And we have a pretty good understanding of why some of those are favored sometimes and not others, and it gives us uh, questions to ask and things to think about when tracking their evolution over time, and we're making predictions and projections into future evolution. Okay, for, i, I got to ask this, though. Who, who are these people who were tracking stick insects for 25 years? <laughs> Most evolutionary biologists work on what seem like fairly idiosyncratic systems, right? And part of that is that, unlike, say, physics, where one could perhaps argue that an electron's an electron, in biology, if we want to uh, make any general statements about things, we have to understand those things in many different systems because it's only through sort of an average that we start to get, okay, it usually works this way or it usually works this way under these conditions. You can't just learn about, say, mice and nematodes and then generalize to everything from mice and nematodes. You need all these different systems. Now, when they were collecting this research over a quarter century, did they know that it was moving toward this this thing, or did you find the data set and go, oh, my goodness, this is a gold mine? Yeah, I mean, I think it, as is often the case with these long-term data sets, people start collecting them knowing that at some point something cool will come out of it, that if you collect data long enough, you're going to see something interesting, and that's, and that's mostly how this started. Um, in fact, when the, when the colleague of mine, Patrick, started to put this together, he, he was like, oh, we'll find something. We'll see what, what popped out of it. And then we started seeing these patterns that suggested these 
predictable uh, fluctuations across time. Like, okay, let's dig in on this. Let's try to get at what's going on here and why one aspect of evolution seems so predictable. Okay, so tell me, after you call, you got this data, you're, you're, you're digging into it, and you start to see these associations, right? Yeah, so it's taking a step back. We're looking at the frequencies of these different flavors, morphs of these uh, stick insects, different color pattern forms. And we knew some things already. We knew that the difference between the all green one versus the green one with the white stripe had to do with one being more cryptic on one of the two plants they feed on and one being more cryptic on the other. Basically, one of the plants has nice big broad leaves and the ones that are all green blend in really well there. The other one has these needly, almost pine-like leaves and the white stripe essentially splits the body down the middle and makes it look like two little pine needles as opposed to one big leaf. Um, there's a little bit differences in the shades of green too, but these blend in better on each of these two different plants. And we know from past experiments that if you put them out in the field and you let birds be able to eat them, the ones that are more cryptic on a given plant will do better and survive more. So we expect these differences in terms of the ones that are all green versus green with stripes on, on the different plants. We started asking, well, why? And we were able to pretty quickly through some uh, transplant experiments and some DNA sequence analysis recognize that it was natural selection that was driving this, that natural selection was favoring striped bugs more one year, less than X, more one year, less than X. The question was, was why was this difference there? So we did another experiment uh, where we put bugs out where we either put 80% striped, 20% not striped on a bush, where stripe should be good, or 80% not striped, 20% striped. The simple expectation is stripe should go up on both of them. Right. That's not what we saw. When stripe was rare, it shot up like it was supposed to. When it was already really common, it basically didn't do much of anything. The idea behind this is that basically something's advantage is greater when it's rare. The most likely reason for this is when the striped ones, even though they're cryptic, when they get sufficiently common and they're all that's out there, the birds essentially learn to find them. And they spend the extra time to... to go after them because it's worth getting that search image and say, no, this is, this is the thing. Even though it's harder to find, it's all that's there. And so that advantage the, stripes, the striped ones have for being more cryptic on that host goes away when they get sufficiently common. That's just this intrinsic drive, this thing that's internal to the system that, that is only dependent on the frequency of the stripe that dictates whether stripe is really favored or not so much favored, and it gives you this clean fluctuation through time. And so the birds are really like this... This X factor, right? This thing that comes in. And this is, this is ultimately what you guys conclude is, is well, it's going to be gosh darn hard to predict evolution because you can't account for all the X factors, That's right? exactly right. And, this is, and I think that's a, that's a, it's a great distinction between what happens with the stripe versus green and what happens with those two things together versus the brown ones. So for the stripe versus green, it's pretty much just the frequency of stripe now that seems to be driving things. The brown morph is not cryptic on the leaves of either plant. Instead, it's cryptic on the stems of both plants. And it tends to stay around a 10 to 20% frequency. It's sort of more rare than the others, but it still varies in space and time. And its fluctuations in space and time are almost completely not predictable. Um, and we think the reason why is, unlike the simple case for stripe versus green, there are many different X factors, as you call them, that are sort of coming into play there. It, part of it is the sort of uh, climatic factors. Dark bugs, they increase in frequency when you have warmer years. But that's kind of weird because actually, the, as you would expect for a darker bug, they actually sort of heat up more under warm temperature and actually desiccate and die easier under high temperatures. So it's not temperature directly. 
In other words, there are these many different factors that are coming into play, dictating whether the dark ones do well or not, whereas the green versus striped, it's very, very simple. And the, the factors that matter for the dark versus green are things that themselves are harder to predict, like what's the temperature going to be like next year? Is it going to be a warm year, a dry year, a wet year? Those kinds of things that are extrinsic to the to the bug itself, right? Whereas just like how frequent is stripe? Well, you, you know that from the bugs themselves. So the more, the more multifaceted, the things driving selection are, and the more those things themselves are hard to predict, the more it's going to be really, really hard to predict evolution. And to do so, you would need to, A, understand all those different things and how they interact, right, and be able to predict their values. And if you could do both of those things, then you could predict evolution well. But for practical reasons, those things are going to be really hard. So the bottom line here is there's, there's so much to play. There's so many variables that we probably can't predict evolution very well. So where do we go from here? Do do we even try anyway? And what's, what's the benefit of, of trying? So there's two reasons you might want to predict evolution. One is more purely academic, to see how well you understand the process, right? From that case, we should focus on those systems where we sort of have spent our energy already, and we should try to understand where our predictions work and where they fail. But I think that, that part itself is interesting, knowing the limits to our predictions and where, where are we falling apart? Where do, where do we have gaps in our knowledge that need to be filled? What's causing these things not to be as good as they could be? And then the second is more in an applied context. You want to be able to predict whether some uh, insect is going to evolve resistance to some insecticide, those kinds of things where we, that we actually want to have good knowledge. Um, the nice thing about many of those systems like that is they may be on the simpler side. Those may actually be some of the cases where we have more predictive power. And there I think still it sort of behooves us to start to fill in these gaps and interactions where, okay, Maybe we need to start observing more cases of that, that process or looking at some of these interactions, even in those simpler cases, to improve our ability to predict and, again, to see where we fail even in those more applied cases that are maybe simpler in some senses. I think the take-home is, is that in some cases we're able to predict things well, in other cases not. And I think one of the key things that we found that maybe differs from what people tend to think about it's often you hear, well, you can't predict evolution because it's random in a true sense, because a lot of evolutionary change is driven by things that aren't in any way deterministic, that it's just, oh, that one happened to make it, that one didn't happen to make it, right? What we're looking at here are cases where, sure, randomness plays some role, but it's minor, where things are mostly driven by natural selection. So you can have unpredictable evolution because it's random or because it's complicated. In our case, it's because it's complicated, not because it's random, which means there is at least a possibility of understanding it. It means you need to collect a whole bunch of data, basically, right? You need to understand all these interactions. But it does mean that it is at least possible to get to that good predictions, whereas if it's truly random in an absolute sense, all the data in the world doesn't help you because it's random. That's Zach Gumpert. Zach, will you stick around so we can chat some more at the end of the show? Absolutely. What's wrong with taking care of a woman? She takes care of you. You'll have a hard time finding women like that these days. Shoot, you think so? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Lightning could strike. That is an exchange between Brad Pitt and Claire Ferlani in the 1998 movie Meet Joe Black. And that pause at the end comes with a shot of Ferlani's character with an expression on her face that's, well, it's, it's indescript. Psychologist James Cutting's latest research says movie directors are using more of these sorts of cryptic reaction shots, and he thinks he knows why. James Cutting, welcome to Undisciplined. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, so I, I'm curious, when did you realize that it seemed as though these sorts of shots, these conversation-ending images where there's, there's no dialogue spoken, the characters don't have a discernible emotion on their face, but they seem to be happening more often. When, when did that strike you that that was happening? Well, I have to 
give you a little bit of background. Uh, I, too, actually am interested in evolution, but in a very strange way. Uh, the idea is that we obviously didn't evolve to watch movies, but I think one can make an argument that movies have evolved over the last century to basically fit better and better within our cognitive and perceptual uh, capabilities. So uh, my students and I have been studying movies. Uh, we now have about 300 of them released from 1915 to 2015. And let's set aside the silent films uh, for a while. If you watch movies over this very long period of time, one discovers uh, a number of things. One, conversations have always been important in uh, movies. Depending on the genre, between 50 and 70 percent of all shots in movies are of conversations. So they're pretty interesting. Conversations over time have gotten shorter in movies. They used to last about a minute. Now they last about 30 seconds or so. Shot durations have gotten much shorter over the same period of time. So even though conversations have gotten shorter, they uh, entail more shots going back and forth between uh, the conversants. Most conversations in movies, at least today, are only between two people. You don't usually have conversations among larger numbers of people. And then I noticed that there were these strange things that were happening uh, at the end of conversations, and that is the last person seen just doesn't talk. <laughs> and uh, I sort of wondered if that were the, always the case or not the case. And again, setting the silent films aside, these were incredibly rare, these what we call reaction shots at the end of a conversation. They were very rare in the 1930s and 40s. And I began to count them. I have, you know, all the conversations in uh, hundreds of films. And I, I looked at all those conversations, obviously with my students, and uh, just counted the number of reaction shots that ended conversations. Now, there are a lot of reaction shots in conversations, but as it turns out, if you have a reaction shot in a conversation, you're going to get a reaction shot at the end of the conversation, typically about 70 or 75% of the time. So they've just become more and more frequent from the 1940s to the present day, whereas conversations in the 1940s rarely ended with a reaction shot. Today, they've occur about 70% of the time. And we just played one such clip from Meet Joe Black. Are, are there some other famous examples? Or are there ones that just like stand out in your mind as like, that is the perfect cryptic reaction shot? <laughs> there are a bunch of uh, wonderful ones. Uh, one of them occurs nicely at the end of Casablanca, where uh, you have Claude Rains on the phone to the Germans and Humphrey Bogart talking with him, and they go back and forth, and there's some very strong reaction shots uh, on the face of Bogart when uh, Claude Rains is explaining what's going on. I mean, that's probably uh, among the more famous ones that you have. But, you know, they are so frequent. I mean, your example of Meet Joe Black is amazing because the Brad Pitt character and the uh, Forlani character go back and forth 12 times at the end of that conversation, neither one of them speaking to raise the other one as they walk away. And, and throughout this, what you've noticed in your research is that a lot of times these are fairly neutral emotion shots or they're hard to peg emotion shots. What, what are directors trying to do? Yeah, they are neutral. I mean, first of all, if you look around in the world, you find lots of people that smile, but you rarely see uh, real people in rage or incredibly sad or other kinds of things. Negative emotions tend to be rare. And certainly the most common 
emotion that we have uh, in real life is just kind of a blank, maybe slightly bemused uh, look. And so what movie makers are, are trying to do is to portray a reasonably natural conversation. Normal conversations actually differ from what we see on the screen, but they want it to appear reasonably natural. And so when you have these reaction shots, and we've actually calibrated this, the expression is slightly negative and slightly aroused. Now, as it turns out, when most people have a, a, a neutral expression, people will judge it to be slightly negative. But by slightly aroused, there are other things going on. There are little, you know, uh, twitches or eyebrows doing something or eyes or heads cocked one way or another or certain tension in the shoulder. And uh, that's the kind of shot that tends to end conversations if the person is not going to talk. I'm curious, does this just ruin movies for you? I mean, would you, <laughs> when you... When not you... at all, not at all. I can, I, can, I can tell when I'm watching a bad movie because I begin to look for all this kind of stuff. If it's a good movie, I'm totally uh, sunk into the movie and I'm not thinking about this stuff at all. I now watch a lot of movies a second time. And, you know, second time, third time, fourth time, you can begin to pick out all of this stuff and let the narrative go. How did you as a psychologist come to decide that movies were such an interesting venue for understanding the human mind? In psychology, we tend to study things that happen in the instant, and we tend not to study things that are distributed over a long period of time. The nice thing about movies is that you have a person basically sitting in a chair uh, for 90 minutes, and you can do all kinds of things. So people study eye movements, people uh, take galvanic skin responses, uh, you can actually put people in a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine and, and see what their brains are doing, you can put scalp electrodes on them, and and in all of these cases, you can find out what the person is doing in their mind over a long period of time. And so I think it's just a, a completely wonderful new window into the study of the human mind. You talked about uh, you know the overlap between movie making as it changes and, and evolution. And I'm wondering, do directors know they're part of this evolution? Is it conscientious or are they responding to the technology, to just what they see subconsciously in other movies? Um, or is it, is it really very intentional? I think some of this is intentional and some of it's not. I mean, filmmakers basically, uh, they train themselves. They watch what other filmmakers do. They essentially collect what they think seems to work well and discard things that don't work well. They have to work very fast. They work by the seat of the pants. It's basically a craft obviously, not a science. And you're trying to make the best film that you can. The producers want to make the money if they have to save money, and so that's why you go fast. And we now have new technology, particularly in editing, to help speed uh, all of that stuff up, and you can do a lot of things in post-production. And all of this is directed towards the product. And you know, it, it's it's kind of like, I think, an anthropological cultural exchange kind of thing. I mean, that is people, they they generally know what a, a, they like in movies. They tend to try to replicate that with something new. And so this process is essentially just kind of a free-running machine that changes over time. And so my point is that you can actually map the many changes that occur over time. That's James Cutting. James are you ready for a chat about something a little bit different? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, so now for an introduction. James, I'd like to introduce you to biologist Zach Gompert. 
Hi, Hi James. Back. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Good to meet you, too. All right. And that was uh, psychologist James Cutting. And so, James, you were sitting in listening to my conversation with Zach. Did it spark anything with you? You've already made some references to like the, the idea of like this overlap between evolution and, and movie sure. making. Yeah, no, I think I, I try to inform what I do from a, a biological perspective insofar as I can shoehorn it into to that. But I don't like separating culture from biology very much. And I think that there are changes in our culture and things like that that are related to the kinds of changes that happen in uh, biology. And uh, this whole idea of prediction, I think, is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's what you, can, you can always go backwards in biology and... Or, most of the time, you can go backwards in biology and make good guesses about what went before, but prediction is a, a very difficult thing, and I would not find it easy to make predictions about movies either. So, I mean, kind of along those lines, uh, when it's like, you know, one of the ways we, uh, we approach thinking about making predictions in these time, evolutionary time series is, and you could make proper predictions in the sense, and, and we're doing this too in the sense of, you know, trying to say, okay, what's this trait going to do over the next, you know, 20 generations? But a lot of what right. we do, because but then if I'm going to do that, I can't test it for 20 years, right? Um, but so a lot of what we end up doing is actually pretending like we've we we don't know the recent past. In other words, we have we have say 25 years of data. Let's throw out the last five. It's like it never happened, and let's use the other 20 to build some model for how we think evolution's working and try to predict the five years that we just threw away, and then we can test it right away. So it's like as if we're just sure. taking you know throwing away the recent and just saying okay, let's go back a little bit in time and pretend like we don't know what's right. going to happen. So, I mean, you're talking about how these evolutionary patterns of change in in some of these aspects of what goes into movies. Do you think you could do something like that, right? So if you were to, say, throw away the 2000s and fit some model for how these different aspects of what goes into a movie's uh, work um, from the time before that, could you have predicted the last, you know, 18 years of movie making very well? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting idea. And because I essentially had all the data in front of me, I didn't bother doing that because <laughs> I, I certainly wanted to know what was going on in the 1950s after having seen some stuff in the 1980s and, and vice versa. Uh, one of the things that took us about six or seven years to do was to have the affront in going back and looking at silent movies because silent movies are... You know, it's almost like a whole different genre. So one of the things that happened from 1913 to 1927 and 8 with the silent movies, the shot durations get shorter and shorter. They go from about 10 seconds to about 4 seconds. And then sound comes in, and uh, the shot durations burgeon back up to about 10 seconds uh, on average throughout the whole film. And then they stay up there through about the 1950s, and then they decline into the 90s and to the present day. And what's interesting is that the average shot duration in 1927 for silent films was just about the average shot duration was in 1995. The argument I would make is that filmmakers, they basically had to master conversations. Uh, and had to uh, deal with this. And it, it, one claim you could make is that it took 70 years <laughs> to get to the same point in sound that in silent uh, pictures people made in uh, 15 years. Um, <laughs> of course, the reason why it's so difficult in sound films is that you've got sound to deal with. <laughs> in the silent films, you can just throw up the faces, you, the lips will move, and then you can actually print 
in the title slide exactly what the people said, and that's sort of what they did. So yeah, looking backward and forward is is really an interesting prospect. And I did some of that with the pattern of shot durations across the whole film, the pattern of motion distributions in images across the whole film, and luminance and contrast across the whole film. And the patterns that you see in films from 1990 to 2015 are reasonably well-developed. They're nascent in the period from 1960 to 1985, and they're they're essentially non-existent in the films from 1930 to 1955. So, yeah, looking backward, you can see a a disappearance of of patterns. So, Zach, I was just like, this is screaming at me, right? Like, uh, James is just talking about shot durations and how they they moved in a certain direction in silent film and then a certain direction once we had ta- what we called talkies at the time yeah yeah right and i'm just like this is convergent evolution <laughs> no totally, totally it's kind of it's really neat there's two things that i thought were interesting about that one is that the initially getting the sound injected into things it, it's one of the it reminds me of something we do have in evolutionary biology where you have these these sort of key innovations or major events that just sort of change everything for a little bit as a classic example um, a meteor strike wiping off the dinosaurs right these things that you just yeah, aren't right, expecting right. they totally shuffle the playing field and it, you know throws everything up but then after that after sound you do get this convergence back to where you were before it takes a while it takes a long time but you get back to this sort of nice stable happy place after this big catastrophe sh- uh, shuffles everything around it's, it's quite cool you guys, I'd love to continue this, but we are almost out of time. Zach Gompert, thank you for joining us on Undiscipline today. Thanks a bunch for having me. And James Cutting, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thank you for listening. Now go have big ideas.